Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Dr. Jennifer Litton is a board-certified medical oncologist and professor of breast medical oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, where she also is vice president of clinical research. Dr. Litton also is a member of the Breast Immuno-Oncology Task Force of the National Cancer Institute. She joins us today to talk about the side effects that may be caused by the two immunotherapy medicines approved for breast cancer, Keytruda, also called pembrolizumab, and Tocentric, also called atezolizumab. Dr. Litton, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to talk to you again. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie, for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So just in case everyone that's listening isn't familiar, could you give us a, a short overview of how the two immunotherapy medicines for breast cancer work? Sure. So immunotherapy is not new to cancer treatments, but but it's a, definitely newer as far as what's available for breast cancer. There's really been two so far pivotal phase three randomized clinical trials in metastatic triple negative breast cancer. The first one was the Impassion 130 study, and this looked at patients with metastatic uh, or, or inoperable locally advanced triple negative breast cancer, and they were randomized to either atezolizumab and nabpaclitaxel versus a placebo and nabpaclitaxel. And um, in the primary progression-free survival analysis, it did show improvement, but specifically in the subgroup that had a biomarker, which is PDL1 staining on the tumor infiltrating immune cells. So the FDA did approve atezolizumab in that setting. And there's been several further follow-ups in both the primary time that they presented as well as at a further meeting in ASCO at 2019, showing a survival benefit of potentially up to uh, seven months for people who receive this therapy. We really does appear to have um, significant improvement when given in the first line with chemotherapy, as well as the tumor stains positive for this PDL1 staining. Now, subsequently, there's been another trial, and it's called the Keynote 355 trial. And this was also a phase three randomized trial of a similar size and randomized pembrolizumab and chemotherapy to placebo and chemotherapy. And in this trial, there were multiple different chemotherapy arms that could be chosen. It could be paclitaxel, non-paclitaxel, or gemcitabine and carboplatin, uh, with the primary endpoint also being progression-free survival. Now, they also saw an improvement, especially with that PDL1 staining. Um, showing that uh, difference. And based on that, the FDA has also recently approved this for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So we now have two therapies that are FDA approved for patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And the tumor has been biopsied and stained for that PDL1 protein and are both options now for our patients. Thank you. And so I want to focus a little bit in on. Could you tell us what does it mean 
for a cancer to be PDL1 positive first? Like what what does that mean? I think that's a little bit less familiar than say the hormone receptor status to some folks. And then also why has much of the research, it seems to me anyway, not a scientist, but looking at immunotherapy and it's focused on metastatic triple negative disease. So why is it, why is that particular subtype? So it has been tested in pretty much every subtype of breast cancer. It's been tested in ER positive, HER2 positive, as well as triple negative. Now, there's a couple things about triple negative that makes it very different from ER positive breast cancer and why it's moved forward uh, faster than the phase three studies with the therapies we've had. So first of all, in a lot of the earlier studies looking at ER positive breast cancer, really didn't see that same signal of improvement or response. HER2, I'd like to say something slightly controversial, um, but I feel that trastuzumab has been an immunotherapy long before immunotherapy was popular. And I think that, you know, is a form of, of, of using that as an immunotherapy, but combining it with these new drugs such as atezolizumab and pembrolizumab, these checkpoint inhibitors, this has already gone up and there are, there are several phase three trials looking at this right now and several through the cooperative groups. The triple negative breast cancer move forward, and it's because of some very specific uh, features to triple negative. Now, I, I know that we've we've talked before, Jamie, and you know, triple negative breast cancer is not one disease; it's a it's a group of diseases that are all grouped together by what they're not. But they tend to be faster growing. They tend to be you know actively dividing more. They have increased mutational burden, and when they look more unlike the other breast tissues, so the body's already starting to see it in many cases. If this is not part of our body, we're going to start sending immune cells and start to infiltrate into those tumor cells. And the way that these particular immune therapy drugs work, tumors can get very smart. They can put up shields to hide from the immune cells that the body is sending in to kill the tumor cells. And these drugs actually can take those shields off. So if there's immune cells sitting in the tumor cells, it, in the tumor bed itself, it makes it more effective to go in and start destroying the tumor cells. And this is something that we don't tend to see in the luminal or the ER positive breast cancers. PDL1 is one of those markers, kind of of those shields I was talking about where the interactions of, you know, the T cells to the uh, tumor cells and the, the immune cells. So, so um, having expression of those receptors as you're trying to block them and make the immune cells more available to destroy the tumor cells is really the strategy of these drugs. Okay. So I'm going to put that in my words and you can tell me if I'm understanding correctly. The PDL one is kind of like the shield that the tumor is using to to block the action of the immune system on the tumor and these PDL1 uh checkpoint inhibitors which is Keytruda and Tecentric they kind of block that so the tumor doesn't have the shield anymore so the immune system can act more strongly on the tumor does that is that am i understanding right <laughs> It is, and, and I think I would just horrify uh, my friend Jim Allison at, <laughs> at, at calling it shields like that, but but when I kind of think of it that way, so there's a lot of different protein interactions between tumor cells and the immune cells 
So these inter interrupting these interactions can really make the immune cells more likely to see the tumor cells and kill them. Okay. And I definitely want to underscore it's it's not actually a shield. It's a protein reaction, but, <laughs> but it's kind of helpful for me to visualize it that way. I do. You know, I have a teenage son, so I, I when I'm trying to describe it to patients, I, I always kind of bring up the Harry Potter and the cloak of invisibility, and that seems to be very helpful. Yeah, it's like the tumor has this invisibility cloak, and these drugs take it off so the immune system can find it. I like that. Exactly. So so tumors that have immune cells already sitting in there are going to be more effective versus a lot of ER positive tumors where there's you can take a slice of the tumor and there's no immune cell. So if you t ripped off that cloak, not much is going to happen because there's not cells there. Now, I am not saying that there isn't a role for immunotherapy and these other subtypes and we're really looking into it. But you're going to see these studies looking at ways of kind of depositing or or causing reactions that bring those immune cells into the tumors like we tend to see at a higher proportion of triple negative into some of the other tumor types. Oh, okay. That's good to know. So now we've kind of got all the basic stuff we've talked about. Let's get into the main point of the podcast, which is really the side effects of these immunotherapy medicines, because I think a lot of people are familiar with like a chemo or radiation side effects because the treatments have, or breast cancer anyway, they've been around a little bit longer. And some of the Keytruda and Tocentric side effects are the same, you know, fatigue, nausea, diarrhea, low white blood cell counts. But the immunotherapy medicines also have kind of this, what I think of as a suite of very unique side effects, like long liver, colon problems, problems with other glands like that make hormones like the thyroid and the adrenal glands. Um, so could you talk about those side effects that are kind of specific to immunotherapies that way? So I'd like to say that you did a very good job just <laughs> presenting a lot of those side effects, but I think you're absolutely right. I do think it's a different toxicity profile than our standard drugs and how we monitor them. And patients may experience, you know, especially if they've had chemotherapy before and little things that we might say, okay, well, we'll watch that or take a Tylenol. We're not going to do when you're on immunotherapy. So uh, there's a lot of things. I pretty much say anything that can get inflamed could potentially get inflamed. We Some of the more common things that uh, we see could be rash or itching or colitis or hepatitis, pneumonitis, so um, inflammation of the lungs, arthritis, rarely but can be severe, could be myocarditis, so actually of the cardiac muscle cells, encephalopathy, neuropathies, eye toxicities, and I've also seen several patients with um, nephritis or actual, you know, kidney um, issues that, that start off that look like a urinary tract infection, but is in fact an immune reaction to the drugs. Mm. Uh, now, a lot of those we can turn around and we treat, but the other side effects that you mentioned, um, and when I'm specifically the endocrine ones, when we think about the thyroid either going way up or way down, or you can actually develop a type 1 diabetes or, you know, adrenal gland or the endocrine, the pineal gland in your brain, 
you know, if these get affected, one of the things that's really different from some of the other toxicities and other chemotherapies is that if you develop these, they're usually lifelong. So we can continue on the therapy, but it will be treating type 1 diabetes or hypothyroidism and starting those medications. So so um, that is a really important factor and something that we really need to make sure we're clear about when we're prescribing uh, these immunotherapies. I, mean, I do think they're very exciting. I think we've just scratched the surface of this first class and the next group of immunotherapy drugs, I think, are also very exciting. But the toxicities are different. You know, when we're prescribing these and if your doctor is suggesting them to you and they're, they're likely going to be looking for things that we don't normally check or you've had the experience of having checked prior to other cancer therapies. And they really go with the side effects we just talked about. So first of all, really making sure that you have discussed with your physician if you have a history of autoimmune disease. Um, it requires treatment. It's significant. In a lot of the trials, if there was any autoimmune disease, you were excluded. I will say that as we're getting more and more experience across cancer, you know, there there is more data about you know mild autoimmune disease still being able to have the benefit of these drugs with active surveillance. You know, um, panels for checking for infection like hepatitis and HIV and checking for baseline endocrine, thyroid, diabetes, adrenal gland, you know, things that, that we don't normally do for breast cancer treatment may be part of the workup, depending on your situation, um, when are considering one of these immune therapies. Okay. That's good to know. Now, do these conditions, I guess, these autoimmune disorders, do they need to be monitored any more closely? Like, I guess I'm thinking, you know, if you're on chemo, maybe you get uh, checked for stuff once a month or something like that. Like, is is monitoring the autoimmune more frequent? So, you know, I, I tend to, first of all, we had to make sure our whole breast center was aware that one of the first questions when someone calls is what therapy on are you on? And it goes down a different tree kind of in decision if it's immunotherapy. Um, I, I tend to see patients as they did in the trials, you know, prior to each cycle of therapy. But for people who've been through chemotherapy before and you have a headache here or there, and, you know, we just kind of watch or a little bit of shortness of breath or fatigue, you know, we might on chemo just say, well, that's part of the chemotherapy. But on immunotherapy, it is more likely that your uh, clinical team is going to kind of jump on that a little bit sooner. And you may think that they're being overprotective and that's okay. Let them be overprotective. So, you know, headaches, I really want to look for that gland inside the brain. If there's shortness of breath, you know, getting imaging, if there's any sign of inflammation, um, getting the lung doctors involved, if there's severe fatigue, um, we don't want to just say, oh, well, you're on therapy. We want to make sure that we haven't, uh, we want to make sure all of the endocrine things are, are okay, the thyroid, the adrenal gland, all of that, and, and intervening early is important here. So in the beginning of this, as we're trying to sort things out, we may watch the grade of it. So how severe it is either on the lab or your symptom. And if it hits a certain severity, 
even while we're working up, we may just start steroids, whether or not, you know, while we're still doing the workup. Others we can watch while we're doing the workup. Um, and there's been really, I think, great national guidelines out there really helping physicians and patients on the symptoms and what are the different um, levels of treatment uh, needed. And, and I think that they're only um, going to improve as we get more and more dissemination of the information from these trials. Okay, thank you. Um, and finally, you have a patient that's on immunotherapy. Do you give them any tips or things to watch for? I guess, can how can people themselves play an active role in this, in this monitoring for side effects? Absolutely. You know, I, I think that we're really specifically letting them know that that they're not bothering us if they're, you know, a lot of times patients are like, oh, I maybe have a headache and I don't want to bother. On immunotherapy, I say those rules are out. Please, if you start having new headaches, you start having new shortness of breath, you start having severe fatigue, it is always better to over-report that rather than under-report it. Because I have seen some of these symptoms really escalate, even in, you know, a two, three, four-day period of time. So um, I would rather you err on the side of over, even if it's, okay, we're going to watch you for the next day, but, you know, I need to hear from you tomorrow. But I, I would err on the side of over-reporting on this. You know, there's a lot of really exciting um, clinical trials right now with new patient-reported outcomes or apps that can go to your phone. I think specifically, I'm excited about some of these trials for immunotherapy where if we, you know, can check in remotely uh, at periods of time, potentially at a future state, you know, and find the beginning of these symptoms where we can intervene with minimal intervention, you know, I, I think that immunotherapy is right for this sort of um new style of managing and reporting side effects from patients. And and um, I would encourage anyone on this. Obviously, I feel deeply about clinical trials. We could talk about that at another time, at any time. But, um, you know, if you have an opportunity for some of these trials with patient-reported outcomes, um, I think these could be really game-changing, not just for patients on trials, but um, long after the therapy becomes available. Okay, so in, if if I'm understanding right, somebody would have an app on their phone and they they're on immunotherapy and they got a headache, they would just put that in the app and that would get transmitted to their care team, and then they could say, "Oh, this person has a headache. Let's uh, let's get in contact with them and find out what's going on." Right. We're not there yet. That's a future state, but I think that there's a lot of exciting new research and apps being developed to do things just like that. And I, I, you know, I'm excited about some of that research. Okay. Now it sounds like too. I know you said um, for anyone, if they're on immunotherapy, you're not bothering your physician by contacting with a side effect. And it does sound like too that you want the patients to report anything and everything as soon as it happens, rather than say, oh, I have a headache. I'm going to wait until tomorrow and see if it goes away. Is that right? Because by tomorrow, it may be, you know, five or 10 times worse. I, I hate to say, you know, say every time you have a twinge, you're going to call your team. I mean, there has to be some discussion there. And if you usually have headaches every day, you know, but when you start to have something that's new, 
or more severe or more frequent, like the earlier you report that on immunotherapy, I think it's important, at least so they can start tracking you for that symptom. Okay. Okay. That sounds great. Dr. Litton, thank you so much. I really appreciate your insights on all of this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.